wars? President Trump claims a new reason for the Soleimani strike. They were looking to blow up our embassy. As even some Republicans in Congress aim to block any further U.S. attacks. I still haven't had the questions answered. Why does the administration's rationale keep shifting? I'll speak to Defense Secretary Mark Asper and Republican Senator Mike Lee next. And can I get a witness? Speaker Pelosi says she'll hand over the articles of impeachment this week. But did Democrats gain any leverage, or will Leader McConnell be able to block witnesses from testifying? I did nothing wrong. They don't even know what the hell is going on. Plus, closing arguments. Six Democratic hopefuls prepare to take the CNN debate stage Tuesday as one candidate resurges in Iowa and another surprises with early state polling. I want to have a sweeping victory, honestly. But have voters made up their minds? An exclusive with presidential candidate Tom Steyer. Hello, I'm Jake Tapper in Washington, where the State of Our Union is busy. The U.S. Senate is preparing to move forward with the president's impeachment trial. 2020 Democrats are gearing up for the very last debate before Iowa voters make their choice on February 3rd. But this morning, the White House is mired in the fallout from the U.S. strike that killed Iran's top general. While the two nations appear to have pulled back from the brink of war here in the U.S., questions about the rationale for the strike on General Qasem Soleimani are only growing. President Trump now says Soleimani had been preparing to target four U.S. embassies, including the one in Baghdad. That is a threat several lawmakers said they were not told about in a briefing by top Trump administration officials. And it comes amid persistent questions about just how imminent the threat from Soleimani was. Iran is facing a different kind of fallout. Protesters risked their very lives and took to the streets in Iran to protest the regime lying to them about shooting down a passenger plane and much more. Stunningly, they are chanting death to the supreme leader there. The president tweeted in Farsi his support to the, quote, brave, long-suffering people of Iran. And this morning is warning Iran's leader, quote, do not kill your protesters. Joining me now to discuss all of this is Defense Secretary Mark Esper. Secretary Esper, thanks so much for for joining us. We appreciate it, as always. Yeah, thanks, Jake. So let's start with uh, President Trump said on Friday the Iranians were plotting to target four U.S. embassies, including the one in Baghdad. Other administration officials say the intelligence uh, was not that specific. Was there specific intelligence that the Iranians were plotting to attack for U.S. embassies? Well, let me say one thing up front first to your viewers, to the American people. The United States is safer today than we were just a few short weeks ago. Why? Because we eliminated the world's foremost terrorist, Qassam Soleimani, who had the, had the blood of hundreds of American service members on his hands. Secondly, we restored deterrence with Iran, and we did so without Amer- American casualties. And third, we reassured our friends and allies in the region that the United States will stand up and defend our interests. And I want to thank all of our brave service members who are deployed for what they did, for their brilliance in executing this very important mission. Okay. What about the the intelligence? Was there specific intelligence the Iranians were plotting to target four U.S. embassies? There was intelligence that they had. there was an intent to target the U.S. embassy in Baghdad. What the president said with regard to the four embassies is what I believe as well. He said he believed that they probably, that they could have been targeting the embassies in the region I believe that as well, as did other uh, national security team members. That is why I deployed thousands of additional paratroopers to the region to reinforce our embassy in Baghdad and to reinforce other locations throughout the region. Well, Suleimani was a horrible guy, and he killed a lot of innocent people, and he killed a lot of U.S. soldiers. There's no question about any of that. 20-plus years. But but the question is not whether he posed a threat uh, in an existential way, because he he did. I mean, he'd been doing it for years. Mm -hmm. But was there specific intelligence 
that he was plotting to attack four U.S. embassies. Did you see any intelligence like that? I'm not going to discuss intelligence matters here on the show. Let me just say this. The president did, though. He was, it's the president's prerogative. But what the president said was he believed. He said he could have been targeting all those things that I believe as well, that the national security team believes as well. The important thing is this. Soleimani orchestrated, resource directed the attacks escalating up to the December uh, one that killed an American. He orchestrated the siege on a U.S. embassy in Baghdad. And he was planning this much broader plot in multiple countries that would be bigger in scale and that likely would have taken us to open hostility with Iran. In fact, a very, very senior intelligence community official said to us that the risk of inaction is greater than the risk of action. To me, that is very compelling. Well, the president has discussed publicly that he believed, and a belief is not the same thing as there was evidence. I mean, you could believe that uh, Soleimani would have attacked the Eiffel Tower. That's, that's not necessarily based in evidence. I mean, he could have been. He, well, there, he was evidence, there was evidence that part of the attack would be against the United States Embassy. In Baghdad. In Baghdad. But what about the four embassies? I'm not going to discuss intelligence. What the president said was he believed it probably could have been. He didn't cite intelligence. He said it was his belief, but I mean, I guess the, the important matter here is, look, no one is disputing that Soleimani posed an existential threat to innocent people. But the president came out and said that there was that he believed there was a threat to four embassies. Uh, were those four embassies alerted that there was a threat to them? All, all the embassies were alerted. That's why I deployed additional troops to the region. And let me say this much, Jake. I'm glad we're having this discussion today because I'd rather be here discussing this topic with you than going up to Dover Air Force Base and standing there while flag-draped coffins come home. And I have to explain to uh, husbands and wives, sons and daughters, why their service member died when I had information that could have prevented that from happening. But I guess the, the point is, what information? Uh, several information that he was orchestrating an attack. But you're orchestrating something, but you don't know what it was. Orchestrating attack, likely which would include an attack on the United States Embassy. In Baghdad. In Baghdad. Uh, it was going to uh, occur. But did, did the Baghdad Embassy know that there was a threat to them? Absolutely, because, of course, we, they were already under siege by Soleimani. But a new threat, I mean, a, a different threat. The embassy was constantly watching the attacks, the threat streams coming at them, our commanders on the ground. I deployed hundreds of additional soldiers. We had Apache helicopters in the air to deter the attacks and prepare to defend. We had armed drones in the air to do that. Uh, our goal is to protect the American people. Sure, but uh, many members of Congress from both parties have said, that none of the briefings mentioned threats to four U.S. embassies. Why is President Trump telling this to Fox News, but the administration is not briefing Congress on this threat of four embassies, unless there was actually no specific intelligence that there was a threat to four embassies? The president never said there was specific intelligence to four different embassies. He said he believed it. And, they, and I believed it, too. Uh, what Four embassies? What, what, you believe that? I believe there were threats to, to multiple embassies. That's that's why we reinforced embassies with additional troops. Well, here's the thing. Here's why it matters, because it might sound to some people that we're just talking like obviously Soleimani was a bad guy and he, and he killed innocent people. We know that. But the question about whether or not the intelligence is what the president is saying is not a new debate. Uh, uh, remove yourself, remove this president from the discussion. You, you've you've been around as of high. Um, Take a look at what Congressman Justin Amash, former Republican, now independent from Michigan, tweeted on Friday, quote, when President Trump lies or embellishes on a topic this sensitive and administration officials then parrot his claims to avoid drawing his ire, the situation becomes extremely dangerous for our troops and the American people. Is President Trump embellishing? I don't believe so. Look, the bottom line is we had exquisite intelligence that can only be shared with a gang of eight. So I understand the frustration of many members of Congress that was shared with that gang of eight. I spoke to one of the briefers. One of the briefers told me, 
was at most nearly all the members of that gang of eight believed that the intelligence was persuasive as well and that it should not be shared with the broader membership because of the concerns that it could be released, uh, reveal our sources and methods. At the end of the day, President Trump said it on TV on Friday. Soleimani was planning an attack, a broader attack against multiple sites to include embassy and at least the United States embassy in Baghdad, and that it was going to result in open hostilities. Taking him off the battlefield, a legitimate military target, was the right thing to do. Well, first of all, what you're saying is not the same thing that President Trump said. President Trump said he believed there were four U.S. embassies targeted. You're talking about something else, one one embassy and maybe a broader threat to others. Second of all, you're saying that you couldn't tell something to Congress that President Trump was willing to say to Fox News. And that doesn't really make a lot of sense. We briefed Congress, the Gang of Eight, who are the legitimate representatives of the broader Congress in affairs like this when you have exquisite intelligence. They were briefed. I'm not going to go into details of what they were briefed, partly because I wasn't there. Um, let's talk about the word imminent. You have not, as far as I can tell, used the word imminent to describe these attacks. Several other administration officials have. Do you think the threat, the threat was, you believe the threat was real. Do you believe it was imminent? In, in, in my definition, yes. I, I think that the attack was days away. He had, a, he had a proven track record of executing attacks and killing Americans. It was going to be in multiple sites. It was described as being much bigger, I think, for all those re- reasons. And the fact that a senior intelligence official said, the risk of inaction is greater than the risk of action. Right. Compelling for me. That's what Gina Haspel, the director of the CIA, said, according to The New York Times. So you're basically confirming that. So here's a question for you. What you're describing sounds like an all-out declaration of war by Iran. If Iran were to attack the U.S. embassy in Baghdad and also stage this widespread attack, and you believe it was going to happen within days, would that not be Iran launching the, the first shot in a war between the United States and Iran? Well, look, uh, uh, Iran has been attacking the United States through its uh, proxy militias for 40 years now. Sure, of course, but on a and lower look, level, go, go right? Go back to last summer. We had to, we, I had to deploy 14,000 additional soldiers to the region since May. They shot down an armed drone. They were uh, striking Saudi Aramco oil fields in the fall. They were seizing tankers. Uh, the, the, the scale and scope of attacks against our forces in the, in, in the late fall had escalated considerably. Absolutely. But you're describing a more grandiose, if you'll pardon the use of the word grandiose, a wider st- uh, spread and more shocking and more bloody attack than the ones you just described. I mean, would that not be Iran declaring war on the United States if if what you're saying is accurate? Well, it, it could be. That's why I think the compelling action was to disrupt the attack by taking out Soleimani, a known terrorist leader of a terrorist organization who was on the ground meeting with another terrorist leader, taking him out, disrupted the attack. It, uh, it, 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 it also reset deterrence with Iran, and it made clear that we weren't going to tolerate this type of behavior. You know how Iran does this. When the IDF took out the head of Hezbollah a month later, uh, Iranians are suspected in uh, killing a lot of innocent people at a Jewish center in Argentina. And then two years later, they did it again. Um, do you think that Iran poses no more threat to the United States? Are you bracing yourself for something from one of their proxies, a a terrorist group or a militia? I think in terms of direct state action, it is far less of a threat today than it was uh, uh, some time ago. But I think they will continue this malign behavior that they have throughout the world for 40 years. And I think our watchword is vigilance. We have to remain vigilant. What we've got to do, though, is get back uh, to a position where they will come sit down with us. We can talk about how we get Iran to act like a, and behave like a normal country. That's what all of us want. That's what the, uh, the regional partners want. That's what the Europeans want, is get Iran to behave like a normal country, which means no nuclear weapons program, no long-range ballistic missiles, no hostage-taking, and no support of proxy groups that are spe- spreading mischief from uh, Yemen and Iraq and Syria 
to Africa, to Afghanistan. Thousands of Iranians took to the streets, as we noted in our opening, to protest the regime last night after Iran admitted Mm -hmm. uh, that it had shot down that Ukrainian passenger plane. Um, They say it was uh, unintentional and due to human error. It killed dozens of Canadians, Iranians, Swedish, German, British citizens as well. Do you believe that it was an accident, that it was unintentional? Well, terrible tragedy. 176 lives lost from many countries, as you you just said. My, My hunch is it was an accident. Uh, and I was dismayed that their first reaction was to was to blame it as American propaganda or some type of mechanical failure. I think they did the right thing by admitting it. Now they need to allow the investigators in and take responsibility. But you hit on the most important thing. So in the last 24, 48 hours, thousands upon thousands of Iranians in the streets, not just in Tehran, but all across the country saying death to the Ayatollah, chanting that America is not our enemy. What the Iranian people want is freedom, prosperity. They don't want a regime that wants to continue with this type of uh, 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 bad behavior all throughout the region, expending what money could be sh- should be shared uh, and, and invested back into the Iranian people. Mr. Secretary, during your confirmation hearing, you said the 2001 and 2002 authorizations for the use of military force passed by Congress would not justify conducting a war against Iran. Do you believe the president uh, would need additional authorization from Congress to take any further military actions? I don't believe either of those two uh, AUMFs, if you will, authorize an attack on the country of Iran. But the president does have authority under both those to strike at armed groups, militia groups uh, emanating from Iraq. He certainly has uh, the commander in chief's Article II authority to defend the United States. It's been uh, it's been uh, uh, executed by presidents for many decades. We can go back to Reagan with Libya or Grenada, uh, Bush with Panama, Clinton with Bosnia, Somalia, uh, Haiti. Presidents have used that authority. The president relied on that authority in this case as well. Fully justified, fully legitimate to go after uh, Qassam Soleimani, a known terrorist leader in Baghdad, coordinating further actions that would result in the deaths of Americans. All right, Secretary Esper, thanks so much for coming in and taking our questions. We appreciate it and good. have a good Sunday. Republican Senator Mike Lee called the administration's briefing on the Soleimani strike insulting and un-American. He's going to join me to respond next. And how is businessman and 2020 Democrat Tom Steyer polling second in South Carolina among Democrats? I'll ask him. Stay with us. Welcome back to State of the Union. I'm Jake Tapper. Senator Bernie Sanders has a new ally in Congress this week, Republican Senator Mike Lee of Utah. The two senators are trying to block Pentagon funding for the use of military force against Iran. This comes after Lee's sharp criticism of top Trump administration officials this week, who gave what Lee called the worst military briefing he has experienced in his nine years in Congress. Utah Republican Senator Mike Lee joins us now. He's the author of a new book. It's called Our Lost Declaration, America's Fight Against Tyranny. Uh, Senator Lee, thanks so much uh, for joining us. So you seemed, uh, after the briefing, very offended by the lack of information uh, given to you. Was the administration basically just saying, hey, come on, trust us? Look, Jake, in that briefing, we didn't receive very much information that wasn't already available through public media sources. This is one of the things that's very frustrating. When something like this happens, When events are unfolding quickly, events that will have a profound impact on national security and military strategy, Congress does need to know about it, in part so we can evaluate the scope of our authority to act or choose not to act. Uh, We didn't get that, and that was disappointing. Did, uh, in the briefing you experienced, did they say anything about four U.S. embassies were going to be uh, targeted by Soleimani and his forces, as President Trump said on, he believed on, on Friday? 
I, I didn't hear anything about that. And, I, and um, uh, several of my colleagues have, have said the same. Um, so that, that was news to me. It certainly wasn't something that I recall being raised in the classified briefing. Secretary of State Pompeo said at the White House on Friday that he did tell members of Congress about the threat to U.S. embassies uh, as the president revealed publicly at his campaign rally when he said at least one uh, embassy uh, was uh, going to be threatened. Take, take a listen to uh, Secretary Pompeo on Friday. All of the intelligence that we've briefed that, that you've heard today, I assure you, in an unclassified setting, we provide in the classified setting as well. So that's not true? Well, look, uh, I'm not sure exactly what he's trying to say there. I, I don't recall being told, look, there were four embassies. I'm sure there was a mention uh, of at least one embassy in that briefing because there had been an attack on one of our embassies in the days leading up to General Soleimani's killing. Uh, but uh, look, Jake, I want to make very clear. Uh, I, I issued a statement within a few hours of the attack on General Soleimani, announcing that this was a good development uh, from the standpoint of the security of the American people. We are, in fact, safer as a result of the fact that he's dead. If you see a wounded veteran anywhere in America and they're, they're missing a limb or they're badly disfigured, odds are pretty good that that veteran may have been wounded by an IED that was developed and deployed under General Soleimani's leadership and at his direction. And so uh, this development is good for the security of the American people, but it does matter that we give the details to members of Congress, and it does matter to figure out where we go from here and to make sure that any further action is authorized by Congress. Uh, Congressman Justin Amash, uh, Republican turned independent, told CNN that he does not think an attack was imminent, and therefore, in his view, President Trump abused his power by ordering the strike against Soleimani. Do you agree? Uh, look, I have not yet been able to ascertain really specific details uh, as to the imminence of the attack. Again, we weren't provided that the other day. We were given uh, somewhat general statements, uh, and, and I believe that the briefers and the president believe that they had a basis for concluding that there was an imminent attack. I don't doubt that. It's just frustrating to be told that and not get the details behind it. There is also, of course, the argument that there was a, uh, the 2002 AUMF in place uh, uh, authorized it independently, given that this took place within the war zone. So you just heard Secretary Esper say that he does not think further military action specifically against Iran would be covered by the 2001-2002 uh, AUMF authorization for use of military force. Um, do you think President Trump has the authority to conduct another strike against Iran without congressional approval? Well, I, I agree with Secretary Esper insofar as he was saying that. I think he's absolutely right. And if he agrees with that, which it sounds like he does, then he should agree to support the uh, War Powers Resolution that Senator Kane has agreed to introduce with amendments that I've suggested uh, that acknowledges that neither the 01 nor the 02 AUMF can be read to support further military action against Iran, and that in the absence of an AUMF or declaration of war by Congress, or in the absence of an actual or imminent attack, uh, there's no justification for further, further military action. So listen, uh, you and I agree, Suleimani had the blood of innocence on his, on his hands and uh, was a bad person. The question is whether or not the intelligence behind his attack was what it is being presented as. Um, and do you, do you have any concerns? I mean, we've heard mixed messages and conflicting stories about the reason for the attack, whether it's the existential threat that Soleimani posed versus an imminent attacks versus an attack on one embassy versus an attack on four embassies. 
you know, you and I have sat through this movie before, conflicting, changing information, intelligence juiced uh, in order to justify certain actions. How worried are you about the integrity of the information we're being told? Well, I'm worried. And as a United States senator and as a voter and citizen, I've learned not to simply take the federal government's word at face value. I mean, look, we were lied to about weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. We were lied to for a couple of decades about what was happening in Afghanistan. We've been lied to about a lot of things. It's not to say that the government is always lying or that the people who run it are inherently evil. It's just that they're human and these things do happen. And so that's important to ask these questions to make sure that we know the details. And insofar as we're dealing with the inherent tension between the Article II commander-in-chief power enjoyed by the president and the Article I, Section 8 declaration of war power, on the other hand, uh, controlled by Congress, members of Congress do need to be apprised of the information underlying a particular decision. All right, Senator Mike Lee uh, of Utah, thank you so much for your time, sir. We appreciate it. Thank you. Senator Cory Booker says my next guest bought his way onto the Democratic debate stage. 2020 candidate and businessman Tom Steyer joins me to respond to that next. Stay with us. Welcome back to State of the Union. I'm Jake Tapper. Six Democrats will be on stage for a CNN debate Tuesday in Iowa. The very last candidate to make the cut is businessman Tom Steyer. He qualified after a pair of polls showed him in strong positions in two of the early voting states. Steyer has 15 percent support in South Carolina, which votes in late February. And he is neck and neck with Senator Elizabeth Warren at 12 percent in Nevada. Joining me now from the Super Tuesday state of North Carolina, businessman Tom Steyer. Uh, Mr. Steyer, thanks so much for joining us. You'll be on the stage on Tuesday. Senator Cory Booker, Democrat of New Jersey, will not. Booker says that the debate rules, quote, have systematically paved the way for a billionaire to buy his way onto the stage. Do you think you'd be on stage if you weren't spending millions of dollars and putting it into your own campaign? Jake. I think that the thing that has put me on this stage and that is the same for every single person who's running for president is message. I have a very simple message, which is the government is broken. It's been bought by corporations. I spent 10 years as an outsider putting together coalitions of American citizens to fight and beat those corporations. I'm the only person in this race who will say that his or her number one priority is climate And I'll attack it from this standpoint, from the very first day, from the standpoint of environmental justice, and that I can take on Mr. Trump on the economy in a way that nobody else can, because I built a business from scratch, and I understand job creation and prosperity and growth, as Mm -hmm. well as economic justice. So I think this is all about, do you have a message that's differential and important, and do people trust you to actually carry out what you're saying? So the reason people can hear your message, though, of course, is because of, of the TV ads and the millions of dollars you're spent. Um, Let's talk about the two states that you polled well in that got you on the debate stage, South Carolina and Nevada. You uh, and your campaign, you make up the overwhelming majority of television ad spending in those states. Ninety one percent of television ad spending in South Carolina is from you. Ninety seven percent of television ad spending in Nevada is from you. Do you not think that it's your millions uh, and the flood of advertising in those states that that's why uh, you did well in the polls and are now on the debate stage? 
Jake, if you'll read today's Washington Post, there's a story about this. And what it details is what's actually going on on the ground. I've been to South Carolina multiple times. We have 82 organizers on the ground in South Carolina. I'm actually a grassroots person. I've been there. There's someone who didn't endorse me, who's a politician in South Carolina, who said Steyer came down here. He rolled up his sleeves. He went out. He listened to people. He sat across the table. He worked. I've been a grassroots organizer, as you know, for 10 years. Mm. And that's exactly what I'm doing in these early primary states. I'm going. I'm listening to people. I spend all my time in the kinds of meetings that I love, which is taking questions and asking questions and listening and learning. And so, in fact, that's what I think has happened, is that I have an, a, a presence on the ground personally, and our organization is doing the kind of grassroots organizing that I've been doing for a decade. So that's so you think that your performance in these polls is because of your one-on-one meetings with individuals, your campaigning in, the, um, in these states, people meeting you, and not because more than 90% of the television advertising in South Carolina and Nevada is from your campaign. Is, is that what you're saying? That actually isn't what I said, Jake. What I said is we have 82 organizers, by far the most in South Carolina, and I've gone. And let's face it, I'm not a famous person. The other people who I'm running against, all the other people are career politicians, many of whom are extremely famous. Mm -hmm. What I've seen in South Carolina and every state is very low name recognition. And then we work to let people hear my message, understand what I stand for and try and see who I am. And in every state, when people hear that, the numbers go up consistently, and they've gone up consistently since I got into this race in July. So you'll be on the debate stage Tuesday with the former vice president of the United States, with three senators with decades of combined experience, an Afghan war veteran. What experience do you have that makes you qualified to be commander in chief entrusted to send American service members into harm's way? Well, Jake, I did business for over 30 years working and traveling around the world, meeting with governments, talking to the heads of huge corporations, and understanding actually what drives America's business around the world and our relationships with other countries and what makes that trade and relationship succeed. So when I think about our experience over the last 20 years, Mm -hmm. the person who I actually think did the best job in figuring out American foreign policy and military policy was a state senator from Illinois with absolutely no military or international experience named Barack Obama, who said against the the advice of everybody who was an insider in Washington, D.C., that the Iraq war was a mistake. Mm -hmm. So when you say, actually, what we need to do is have more D.C. conventional wisdom in our foreign policy and our military policy, I would say, actually, when I look at the last 20 years, You don't actually inspire me so much. And listening to the earlier part of the show, where, in fact, that very same conventional D.C. wisdom led to misinformation about why we got into Iraq, Mm. led to decades of misinformation about what we were doing in Afghanistan. When you tell me that what we really need is more conventional D.C. thinking about our international policy, our foreign policy and our military policy, I would actually suggest to you that maybe this is more about judgment an experience. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you, when you look at the current conflict with Iran, how much of it do you trace back to what happened to Prime Minister Mossadegh? <laughs> you know, it, 
there's no way to get away from the idea that when the United States does something like depose Prime Minister, Prime Minister Mossadegh, which, ha you know, that's how the Shah came into power. We basically put him into power. That what that does is it changes people's opinion about the United States and what we stand for. Whether we're the guys, the good guys, the people who stand up for democracy and people's rights and freedom and equality. And that's one of the big problems I have right now with the execution of General Suleiman, which is America's brand in the world is the most important protection we have. That even when we're not getting along with an Iranian regime, or we're not getting along with Vladimir Putin, the point is the people around the world know we stand for what's right. And that, that was true when President Obama was the president, is that around the world it didn't matter if we were disagreeing with the Iranian regime. Everybody in the world knew we stood for what's right. And when we do something like depose Mossadegh, or we execute General Suleiman, the question we all should ask ourselves is not just the short-term question, but long-term, does it make us less safe? Does it change everyone's opinion in the Middle East about what the United States really cares about and who we really are? Yeah. So yes, I think that was a dramatic mistake that has reverberated throughout the region for obviously multiple, multiple decades. It's something that Iranians still talk about on the street today. Thank you so much, Tom Steyer. Appreciate your time. Of course they do. Yeah. The gold you, standard Jake. of Iowa polling is out where the Democratic field stands just weeks before the first contest. We'll break it down for you next. grassroots support that we have. So polls are great, some days they're good, some days they're not good. But I think we're going to win here in Iowa because we have an extraordinary grassroots movement. Senator Bernie Sanders finding himself at 20% in the new CNN Des Moines Register poll in Iowa. Take a look. Sanders 20%, Warren 17%, Buttigieg 16%, Biden 15%, Klobuchar uh, 6%. Uh, Congresswoman, let me, let me start with you. You've endorsed uh, former Vice President Joe Biden from uh, Scranton. You represent Pennsylvania. Is Sanders the candidate to beat, you think? I actually don't believe that that's the case, and I think it's probably way too early for us to understand or know that answer. I, I think the polls that you just saw are very, very fluid, uh, and not only fluid, but Iowa is not the only state as we know in the nation. And so I think that it's a start, um, and I think that, as you've seen, it's very, very close and neck and neck, and we'll see what happens in other states as well. Some people think, uh, Congresswoman, that... Um, Vice President Biden is a pretty weak front runner. Uh, I've heard that that argument made. He's at 15 percent, even though he just got the endorsements in Iowa from former Governor Vilsack, Congresswoman Abby Finkenauer. His support was double what it is now, 32 percent in December 2018 before he entered right. the race. What do you think? Well, I think that there's a lot going on in the United States. Impeachment, how he was actually one of the later candidates to come on on impeachment. I think that there are a lot of Democrats that are looking for people that are really true to their values. I mean, I'm 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 assuming here. So um, he's always been kind of like the middle of the road, try and be have more of like an Obama message that is more of unity. Um, I thought what was interesting was the actual Iowa um, 
CNN poll that was done on mm. impeachment, where 51 mm-hmm. percent of independents thought that impeachment wasn't that they were they weren't ready to impeach the uh, the president. I think that those are the things that you're going to have to watch for in terms of like a general race. But I think right now we're still in a Democrat primary race. And you see the people that are pushing for more of the progressive or Democrat platforms doing better in the polls. What did, what did you make of Tom Steyer's argument that he's that he's on the debate stage, not because of his money and the fact that he's uh, really glutting the airwaves uh, in some of these states with ads, but because he has all these organizers and it's grassroots? Uh, money helps. Uh, money helps Tom Steyer be number two in South Carolina. I think without money, I don't think Tom Steyer would actually have uh, any clout whatsoever. I also do think you have to give him credit. He was the first one to jump on the impeachment bandwagon. He's been on it for about two to three years, and he has put his money where his mouth is. At the same time, I want to reject this uh, notion that impeachment would help Trump. Nope, it's hurt Trump because the majority of Americans, more than 50 percent, want him impeached and removed. Seventy percent of Americans want witnesses. That includes a majority of Republicans. And 70 percent of Americans think what he did, which was abusing his power, was wrong. So it has hurt him. It has not helped him. And most independents actually are veering away from Trump. So this is actually a win for Democrats, and I think it's going to strengthen the, the Democratic Party. Let me just bring in the senator. What, what, what do you think about the effective impeachment on all of this? Oh, I think in the end it's, it's a loser for the Democrats. <clears throat> the way Nancy Pelosi has handled this, I think, has been just showed that it's, that it's overtly political. And I think <clears throat> what, what the, the point which was just made is accurate, which is this is all about hurting Donald Trump in the election. There was no chance Donald Trump was going to be removed from president. It's clear it's a purely political operation. And I think people will put will view it in that lens. And I think by the time that the November election comes around, I think the issues with the FBI and what happened with FISA and what, and what happened with the original investigation mm-hmm. are going to be a more important issue for the American public than impeachment. Well, Congresswoman, you voted, you voted uh, for the Articles of Impeachment. Uh, you were one of the freshmen who picked up a, a seat that was not a Democratic yep. seat. Uh, so, I mean, it's not without risk that you did such a thing. Uh, Absolutely. But, what do you and think? And I was one of the ones that was very last uh, to come to the table on that and just specifically over the issue of Ukraine as opposed to the Mueller report or anything else. And I think that this is a moment where, and I disagree with the senator, um, this is a moment where we have to stand by the principles of how our government ought to work and how our uh, commander in chief ought to behave. Uh, and what's happening and happened with Ukraine is very, very alarming. And I think the vast majority of the public believes that to be the case as well. And so although I was reticent to come on board, it was largely because I was reticent to uh, further destroy the, the nation and the national fabric in terms of the way that we communicate with one another. But it absolutely had to happen. And so I was that last person. And I believe Biden is that kind of a person as well. He understands that he needs to be a person who heals the nation. Mm-hmm. who brings the nation together. He's the kind of candidate that can bring the, the nation together. Uh, uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren has not been shying away lately from calling out some of her fellow 2020 candidates. I want you to take a listen to this. You can look oh so sophisticated, oh so smart, by backing off from a big idea. Not now, too hard, can't do this. But think about this. When... <laughs> But that's who she was talking about. She was obviously talking about uh, Pete Buttigieg. You can look oh so sophisticated, oh so smart, backing off from big ideas. Yeah, she has every right to go after Mayor Pete. I mean, Mayor Pete has kind of flip-flopped. He's taken the center moderate lane, and he surged uh, initially in November in Iowa. But now we've seen that enthusiasm and excitement is what brings out the Democratic base. And this whole concept of, oh, everyone is quote-unquote moderate. Well, compared to Donald Trump, every single Democratic candidate is a flaming moderate, right? And you saw in the Iowa polls... Sanders is at what, 20 percent? Warren's at 17 percent. It's neck and neck. 
So I do think that Warren going after Biden and Buttigieg in this debate stage, I would recommend she does it. She hasn't done it yet. And I'm going to see I think we're going to see some tension here between Sanders and Warren leading up to Iowa because okay. they're taking some they're taking I, some low blows here. We'll be, I think in the, behind the scenes, some low blows. We'll, we'll be watching Tuesday night. And, and, and we're so happy that your daughter's OK. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for that story, for promoting that. Uh, up next, the outrageous new argument being used against some lawmakers questioning the rationale for the Iran strike. Stay with us. Iranian General Qasem Soleimani headed up a group the U.S. considered to be terrorist. He was ruthlessly effective. He had the blood of innocence on his hands. Uh, these are not matters serious people are debating. The question is whether it was wiser to kill him and risk an escalating response from Iran or, or not. According to the New York Times, CIA Director Gina Haspel, quote, advised Mr. Trump that the threat the Iranian general presented was greater than the threat of Iran's response if he was killed. This is what the debate is about. This and the intelligence what the allegedly imminent threat to the U.S. was, whether that intelligence is being accurately represented or twisted and shaded to justify a desired strike, as has happened before in the U.S. And also we're discussing the role of Congress in all this. That's a debate that's been raging for decades. But if you listen to the president and his defenders, you don't hear much discussion about these serious matters. The two main arguments we've heard this week are, one, trust us such as Senator Lindsey Graham tweeting, do you believe the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and CAA director are incompetent, lying? I'm beyond disgusted by the suggestion the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and CIA director got it wrong when it comes to the actions of General Soleimani. It's almost as if Senator Graham is unaware that previous administrations from FDR to JFK to LBJ to Nixon to Reagan to Bush to Obama have gotten it wrong when it comes to matters of intelligence and war and peace. Not to mention, of course, this president's long record of prevarication. Plus, the way the government, he pushes the government of the United States to, to use its power and credibility to justify his lies about crowd sizes or hurricane paths or fake crimes by his political opponents. Then there's the, the other approach, the other response we're hearing, attacking those who have questions or who disagree with the decision, defaming them as terrorist lovers. They're in love with terrorists. We see that. They, they mourn Soleimani more than they mourn our Gold Star families who are the ones who suffered under Major. Soleimani. The only ones that are mourning the loss of Soleimani are our Democrat leadership and our That's Democrat sad. presidential candidates. They also support terrorists, apparently, because so many of them think that killing Soleimani was a terrible idea. Of those three, only the first, Congressman Doug Collins, has apologized for his comments. Th those are not arguments. They're smears. They would get you disqualified from a junior high school debate contest. Blind faith in our leaders in matters of life and death for our service members, for the American people, that's false patriotism. And as Samuel Johnson wrote, such a false patriotism is, quote, the last refuge of a scoundrel. Let's try to keep this debate at a level worthy of the dignity of the service members who are in harm's way. Thanks for spending your Sunday morning with us. Fareed Zakaria picks it up next.
quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.